Jesus said that one of the primary tasks of the church was to accomplish the preaching of the gospel. This activity is called the Great Commission and belongs to every member of the church. And yet, many Christians seem to think that international evangelism is a remote event to be carried out by professional groups and full-time missionaries. This is simply not true. This point underscores a major misunderstanding about the topic of taking part in evangelism, because fulfilling the Great Commission should not be viewed as a burden, but as an opportunity and a privilege. Of course, not everyone is called to the field for full-time service, but we can all be a part of the process of taking the truth to the whole world. And nearly anyone can take part in a short-term outreach, such as the Calvary Weekends to Juarez. I went on a Juarez weekend, and the first time I went down, it was um, a really unique experience. Just traveling down in the van, I thought, well, what can we possibly do in 48 hours? And we spent a lot of time traveling down in the vans, but God really opened my eyes. We did so many things. We went out and shared the gospel in the neighborhoods and went down to a plaza area. We did so many things, but one that really stuck out to me was out in the, uh, the dump area. And out there, we was able to uh, share God's love with the people and distribute the clothes. And the people were so receptive and, and, and open to us. Uh, it was incredible. It just changed my heart. And to realize what I could do in just a short amount of time, and anyone can really do. And uh, it just it made a really big impact in my life. Monthly weekend trips go to Mexico and Arizona, where you can make a real difference in a short-term trip. And everyone can be part of the support network for those who are on the field full-time. I'm Chris Olson. I work with a group called Global Adventure Partners. Uh, we're a group of people uh, who really want more involvement in the missions activities at Calvary, but we're not at a stage of our life where we feel like we're called to uh, become full-time missionaries in the field. So we meet regularly together and we tackle tasks in the missions area, things like uh, missionary care. It's a big item for us. We help organize short-term trips. Uh, oversee a lot of the uh, work in areas like uh, Mission Prayer Fellowship, Missionary Prayer Night. Uh, we're involved also uh, quite a bit in communications of what's going on in the missions activities at Calvary to the whole body. Uh, it's a great time uh, to consider whether you might be a person you'd like to be involved at this level also. Uh, there's eight of us now and uh, we've been at this for a year and we're about to double in size. So if you, this sounds like something you might be interested in, enjoying the fellowship as well as the work, uh, now's a good time to call the missions office, get an application and turn it in. Because come June, we're, we're, we're set to grow. Global Adventures is also organizing summer adult trips to Uganda and Panama. You can find out information tonight about all these opportunities at the Global Adventures table set up in the foyer. Or go online at globaladventures.org. All right. We had the informal poll we began tonight about how many have been uh, overseas for the purpose of outreach. And that's instructive uh, because there is uh, an opportunity for everybody at some point in their life to at least taste what it means to go on foreign soil and be a part of preaching the gospel. And whether it's uh, being a part of global partners or praying or giving, whatever it might be, everyone should be part of the network of supporting outreach. Uh, we have here tonight in our little line-on-line living room uh, Neil Ortiz, uh, missions director from Calvary. Neil, welcome. Chip, good to be here with you. All right. And we have Lori Jensen, who's worked in our missions department and uh, is leaving tomorrow uh, for Thailand. And she is uh, getting a head start on the fashions because she's wearing a sarong tonight. 
<laughs> Which, Lori, is traditional attire for both men and women, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Great. So, well, Neil, give us, uh, you've taken over our uh, Global Adventures Department, and we de-emphasize the term missions. We call it the M word, uh, not because it's, it's negative, but because of some of the cultural baggage it carries. And so well, we try to emphasize uh, global adventures and taking the gospel worldwide. Neil, what's the emphasis these days? Well, the emphasis is, is just upon that, Chip, of it being an adventure because anybody who's had the opportunity to serve the Lord, especially outside of what can be referred to as their comfort zone, knows that it's quite an adventure. Now, as far as the missions department is concerned, we're going full steam ahead with uh, changing somewhat our nature of ministry as it has been over the past few years, but we have still maintained uh, very strong emphases in some key areas that involve not only our long-term missionaries who are currently on the field, but those who would like to be involved in short-term trips as well. And the uh, dominant feature of that is the Mexico and the Arizona weekend, right? Yeah, actually we have now uh, monthly trips to the Navajo Reservation in Chinle, Arizona. We have monthly trips to Cuauhtémoc, Mexico, and the work that's being done down, down there with the church, and also to Juarez, Mexico. And so that's an opportunity for people to take a weekend out of their month and have the opportunity to experience serving God in another culture and yet not having to go too far away from home. Give us a, just a thumbnail sketch of what someone who's thinking, well, maybe I should go, but what can they expect on a Juarez weekend? They can expect to be surprised. In fact, uh, most people who go with a certain level of expectation come back having had that expectation completely overwhelmed by what actually happened. And in saying that, I'm not trying to oversell the experience, but truly, if you have the opportunity simply to speak to some of the people among the body here who have gone, they're going to tell you the same thing. So we have monthly trips to Mexico, uh, to Arizona. Then we have... uh short-term summer trips for adults, Connection Missions, they were called, and this year they're going to what locations? Well, over the next 12 months, we're planning a trip to Panama and continuing our work down there with the Guaymi people. And then later, we're planning a trip to Africa, where we would work in Jinji, Uganda, with uh, some missionaries from our church, Jay and Sonny McLaughlin, Jess and Beverly Rich, and a few others who've been down there. And... Uh, With these mission trips, they're a bit more intense, a bit more lengthy, but it's almost proportionate when it comes to how much more of a missions experience you're actually able to have. So a trip, for example, let's say uh, to Africa, how long would that take? Africa's trip, I think, is a couple of weeks, and we plan on spending half that time in Jinji, Uganda, and the other half of that time in Kenya. Uh, One of the interesting things about Africa is it has millions and millions of what are known as AIDS orphans. And in speaking to one of the uh, Global Adventures partners, uh, actually the wife of Chris who shared on the video, her eyes lit up when she looked at me and said, Neil, if we continue work now, imagine being able to minister to these millions of children, give them the gospel, and have them grow up to be an army for the Lord. And Africa certainly needs that. Two other things we ought to mention is our School of Ministry has an annual trip, and they spend about a month on the field. Mm -hmm. That's always an enlightening time for Mm -hmm. the students, and um, that is coming up very soon for this uh, current team. And then we have uh, vertical trips, which uh, formerly were known as lifeline missions trips. We have one to Belize coming up. 
correct. Uh, the school of ministry outreaches are quite intense. Uh, we try to extend them to four to six weeks if possible. And there they have the opportunity to employ the tools that they have gained over the past year of biblical and ministerial training. And so the uh, teams will be leaving here in about a month. They need your prayer. We have a trip going to Harrogate, England, another trip down to uh, Nicaragua uh, to serve with Calvary Chapel of Managua that's there. We also have a trip to Chinle, Arizona. And then finally, we have a trip to Eres de la Frontera, España, where uh, Carlos Casco and his family who are from this church serve as missionaries. I can see how you got your job now, Neil, so that's great. Well. It's Nicaragua. Uh, yeah. uh, we all, as a footnote, by the way, we are taking applications right now for uh, the year 2004 uh, School of Ministry. So if you're interested in that, uh, details at the Connection Center. Well, we have here with us uh, Lori Jensen. And, Lori, we are excited for you. Uh, great things Thank lie you. ahead. It's, and, and thanks for coming tonight. Thank you. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about what lies ahead for you in the coming weeks. Okay, well, June 10th, I'm actually leaving for Thailand. Um, Tomorrow I'm leaving Albuquerque to go visit and travel around the country, visit friends and family. Um, I'm going to be working with a group called Partners. And what Partners does in Thailand is they work with refugees. Um, In Burma, or it's now called Myanmar, the country next door to Thailand, it's been in a civil war for, for over 50 years. And there's a military regime there that's committing atrocities and basically genocide against a lot of the minority peoples. And um, over 200,000 of, of these minority groups have fled their country, fled their homes, and are living in refugee camps in Thailand. And so Partners works to bring them physically, tangibly, the love of God um, through crisis relief, community development, orphanages, school programs, that type of thing. Um, we also work with refugees within Burma. Um, there are an estimated one to two million um, internal refugees who um, their villages have been burned by the army. They're on the run. They're living in the jungle and just trying to survive. And so um, Partners also works in bringing them supplies, bringing them education, working with the, nas- the national pastors, um, just coming alongside and supporting them. You know, Lori, as I listen to you, I know there are people out here thinking, oh, please, God, not me. Uh, <laughs> But That's what I used to think, too. <laughs> how, did you know, how did you know and when did you know that you had, you had the privilege of being a full-time missionary? Um, well, I've always had a heart for missions in one way or another, but I never thought I would be the one going. Um, and about a year ago, God just started stirring in my heart um, the desire to do more with, with what he's given me, the gifts and the skills that he's given me. And um, I just knew it was going to be a kind of intense <laughs> ministry. I didn't know what. And um, last September, I met um, some people from Partners and just... Um, really liked what they were doing in Thailand. And in February, I went out and visited them um, to, ch- to see um, firsthand the ministry that they're doing and got to travel to the camps, got to travel inside Burma to visit a village um, that had been burned down four times by the, mm. by the army. And you, I, I could see as I was driving, or not driving, but floating down the river, um, the blackened poles of their, of their huts um, from where their village had been burned. But they kept rebuilding so, um, so I just knew it, it just clicked. That's great. Yeah. What, what do you think would be the most uh, difficult thing you'll face in the coming days? Um, I, I think cultural adjustment for me, I think, is going to be easy. The food is good. <laughs> the food's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Thai food. Um, but, but the thing that I've been asking people to pray for me for um, is to continue to have a soft and compassionate heart um, as you 
see atrocities and as you are, are faced with, with evil firsthand, um, to some degree you have to develop a little bit of a skin over your heart, but um, I don't want to become callous to people's hurt and um, just to continue to see things as God sees them and to have that compassionate heart. Well, we are going to pray for you in just a moment, but I want to say Lori will be out in the foyer after our study tonight. If you want to meet her, find out more about her ministry, uh, perhaps become a part of that at some level. This would be a great time to do that. Neil? Well, you're all here and privileged to be a part of our commissioning of Lori to the mission field. And so as Chip and I will pray for her, uh, we're grateful to have you here to be in agreement with us as we send her off as a church to serve the Lord in another part of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you have obtained ownership of Lori. And Father, to the degree that she has surrendered to you, you've been faithful to give her opportunity for growth and for service to you, Lord. And Father, as you have allowed her to become involved with this partner's ministry to the Burmese refugees, we now, as a body of Christ, commission her for that service. We pray that you would empower her by your Holy Spirit to accomplish the purposes you have designed for her out on that field. And Lord, we do pray for her adjustment from this culture to that, that uh, amid the enjoyment of the food and of the uh, pleasure in serving you, you would truly help her heart to be soft and to be compassionate for those that she will serve. So Lord, with gladness and joy, we, as your body, commission her for service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, good evening. Well, as Chip had introduced me, my name's Neil Ortiz. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Calvary, and I'm very happy to have the privilege and the responsibility of sharing the Word of God with you tonight. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1. We will start reading in verse 3. Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you, Corinthians, is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. We were burdened above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead 
who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. I'd like to share with you this evening on the subject of resistance training, also known as a common form of physical fitness training. Involved in resistance training is your peripheral muscles being broken down as they push or pull against some force. Now, that force could be gravity, as when you're lifting weights at the gym, or it could be another force, as when you're using a rowing machine. Now, over time, with repeated activity, your muscle fibers get longer and thicker, and subsequently, you're able to work against a greater force or lift heavier weight for longer periods of time. Now, I believe that God has given us an understanding of how the human body increases physical strength and endurance in order to illustrate for us a biblical principle. And that principle is this, that God can use the trial that you're facing constructively to make you the man or woman of God that he wants you to be. Yes, God uses spiritual resistance training to make his men and his women. Now, the word trial, I believe, has been given a bad rap. In fact, in Christian circles, it almost has an entirely negative connotation. When one envisions entering a trial, that vision is comparable to entering a haunted house being absolutely terrified of what might be on the inside and not certain if you're going to make it out alive. The word trial simply means a test, an examination, or an assessment. You see, weightlifters regularly employ resistance training by putting their bodies to the test. They have chosen to agonize under heavy amounts of weight for extended periods of time for the ultimate desired effect of increasing their strength and endurance. They choose to gladly endure the hardship that is short-term for the long-term benefit of being more strong. Now, in this context, the trial that they endure is viewed as good. Why? Because of the ultimate result of their hardship. Now, spiritually, trials or tests come to us in two forms. They come to us in the form of blessings. And the test in blessings is to see whether or not we can handle blessings without compromising our faith in God. The test also comes to us in the form of tribulation. And the trial of tribulation is again to see whether or not we can endure the sufferings, whether or not we can handle them without compromising our faith in God. Now, for our purposes tonight, we will look at the latter, trial or testing by tribulation. We will see how God constructively used the trial of tribulation in the life of Paul the Apostle. Yes, this godly man suffered in the will of God, 
And we'll see how God used this spiritual resistance training to benefit both him and the church. But we must first consider what Paul's trouble was. You see, it's important to understand what Paul's trouble was because it sets the tone of how the passage we are studying tonight is going to impact us. Well, whatever Paul's trial was, we see that he did not want the Corinthians to be uninformed of it. In fact, in verse 8, he tells them, for we do not want you to be ignorant. This was a common phrase of the day that was used to introduce new information. We can conclude that his experience of suffering was so recent that even the Corinthians hadn't heard of it yet. And perhaps Paul was relying upon the deliverer of this letter, Titus, to fill in the details once he got there. Now, the scripture in this passage does not tell us specifically what Paul's trouble was. However, in verse 5, he likened it to the sufferings of Christ. We can then conclude that these sufferings by Paul and his missionary companions were not the result of sinfulness or foolishness on their part, but rather it refers to tribulation and hardship that come from simply living as a Christian and suffering as a Christian. Now, we do know from the passage that his suffering was in Asia. And the only specific trial that we're informed of that Paul and his travel companions had experienced in Asia is given to us in Acts 19 when we're told of a riot incited against them by a man named Demetrius. However, this takes us back several months. And the way that Paul communicates this seems to imply that what he refers to was much more recent than that. Now, to get a general idea of what Paul's sufferings might have been, would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. In the second half of verse 23, we read Paul as he's describing his ministry. He says, In labors I have suffered more abundant." in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches, Now, just a note for that last type of suffering that Paul shares with us, his deep concern for the churches. We might liken that to our deep concern for our family and the troubles that they might endure, whether it be by the form of hardship that has come from the outside or even internal family stress from within. Paul knew what that felt like. But as we return to our passage in chapter 1, We have to conclude, because God didn't allow us to understand the details, that perhaps at this point the details were not important. However, from studying the passage, we do discover that the divine 
intention of this passage is what's important. The strength of this passage is hidden in the fact that we do not know the specifics of why Paul suffered. Not knowing the specifics gives us the opportunity to perhaps relate more to Paul. Had he told us how he suffered, what the cause of his suffering was, we might exclude ourselves from understanding what he's talking about. However, Paul does share with us the effect that this trouble had on him. And to those effects, we can relate. As we read Paul's words, we can relate to his inward distress. Now, as we look at verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 and read the effect that his trouble had upon him, ask yourself if you've ever felt this way. We read, again, Paul telling the Corinthians, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble. The word here in the Greek is the word thalipsis, which means distress or anguish. He tells the Corinthians, We do not want you to be ignorant of our distress and anguish which came upon us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. Have you ever felt that way? We were burdened above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. As we read this, we see that Paul strains the language to the limit in an attempt to try to express himself. He says here that they were burdened beyond measure. Literally, he's saying that they were weighed down to the point of despair with no relief in sight. As I read that, it takes me back a few weeks ago when a friend and dear member of this church had just found out that her son, who's serving as a Marine in Operation Iraqi Freedom, was in the heart of Baghdad. Now, this was at the time when the battle for Baghdad was still very uncertain. And I can remember looking in the eyes of this woman and seeing that she felt the the way that Paul describes himself as feeling here. She was weighed down to the point of despair with no relief in sight because at that point she didn't know how that battle was going to turn out. Paul also says that they were burdened above strength. Now, literally, he's saying that we were burdened utterly beyond our strength. Paul, at this point, had lost all confidence in himself and in his resources. We might say that at this point, confidence had deserted Paul. He continues saying that they despaired even of life. Literally, they were not certain of their survival because of the total unavailability of an exit or of a way of escape. When I read that, I think of the many people I've had the opportunity to pray with over the years who have just been informed that they or a loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal form of illness. They, too, feel as if they're not certain of their survival because, as far as they can see it, there's no way of escaping it short of the Lord's healing. And finally, Paul says that we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Literally, being that this is a judicial term, Paul's making a statement that at that point we received our death sentence. Paul here envisions himself as a man who perhaps once more begged of the king for mercy that his life might be spared. But at this point, that request had been denied. 
In addition to his description, some of the verb tenses used by Paul show us exactly how vividly this memory of his trouble remained with him. Now to get to the good stuff. How? How did God constructively use this trouble to make Paul the man of God he wanted him to be and also use that suffering for the benefit of the church? Well, first, from our passage, we understand that this form of spiritual resistance training in the form of trial presents us with a spiritual fitness assessment. You see, when our lives are interrupted by trial, our relationship with God is put to the proof. Our faithfulness to our responsibilities to the Lord are assessed. Trials offer us a spiritual checkup to see exactly how much we trust the Lord in his goodness, his faithfulness, and his sovereignty. And the interruptive nature of trial affords us a pop quiz, if you will, over the condition of our trust in God. Now, we know that it's virtually impossible to be prepared for every trial. In fact, we don't know how exactly we're going to respond when trial comes upon us, especially when it's in the form of perhaps a layoff or a diagnosis or the breaking up of a family, separation, an accident, a death, perhaps being overlooked for a promotion at work, being disrespected, or plain, just not getting your way. We don't know how we're going to respond until that trial hits us. What about some more mild trials, like getting in the slow line at the bank or losing vital information off of your computer's hard drive when you need it most? How do we respond? When we face these things, we are put to the test. Paul was a man who was often put to the test. And we see here in this passage, Paul passed the test. I want you to notice with me in verse 3, the first words out of Paul's mouth when he begins to discuss their sufferings. He says, Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What speaks to me here is what he doesn't say. He doesn't complain. He doesn't nag. But he first chooses to exalt God. We see that Paul passed his test, his spiritual fitness assessment with flying colors, Because for Paul, trusting God and remembering God had become second nature to him by this point. It had become second nature to Paul because Paul trusted in God long before the trial hit. And he trusted in God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We see here that Paul developed a holy habit, if you will, of obediently trusting that God would not allow anything sufferable to come upon him if it wasn't for an ultimate good. To believe otherwise would be to impugn God's character, to attribute some kind of evil torture to God that we know from understanding his nature would be utterly inconsistent with God. Now, knowing that trial will put us to the test, this stresses the significance of building your life upon a sure and steady foundation. And the scripture tells us that the only trustworthy and worthwhile foundation that exists is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stay founded on Christ by lovingly obeying Him, by cooperating with Him, by trusting Him, by living a life free of a rebellious attitude toward Him and His desires. In fact, we stay founded 
upon Jesus Christ by simply trusting the blueprint that he has designed for our life. And no matter if it be a time of blessing or a time of tribulation, we trust the Lord. If you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, I want to read with you the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus closes up with a thought that begins at verse 24. Now, mind you, this is after Jesus' most comprehensive sermon on how to live life and what type of response to have toward God. He closes by saying these words, again, Matthew 7, verse 24, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended because it will. And the floods came because they will come. And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So, where are you standing now? How prepared are you in your steadiness upon the rock of Jesus Christ? Now, how you respond to the trial that you're facing or will face will be a good barometer to measure your spiritual temperature by. Now, if in this testing you realize that you're not where you need to be in trusting the Lord, then simply take it as a merciful heads up by God and begin to take the necessary steps that will get you from where you are to where you need to be. Now, secondly, in this passage, we see that this form of spiritual resistance training in the form of trial positions us to mercifully experience God's power. We experience that power in the form of his power to comfort us. Now, perhaps some of us would never know the intensity of God's loving embrace had we not been stilled by trial. We otherwise wouldn't sit still long enough to let him envelop us with his perfect love had we not been stopped dead in our tracks by the debilitating nature of tribulation. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, John says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Having a trial come into your life, positions you to receive God's comfort and his love. And that's when you discover firsthand that God's love dissolves your fears. We see here in verse 3 that Paul begins to describe God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He goes on to say, who comforts us in all our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation 
and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And again, our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you'll also benefit, you'll experience God's consoling power. Now, the Bible promises this. God's comfort and the trial that he has allowed in your life always go hand in hand. You see, a person's most satisfied with a drink of water when their tongue is utterly parched from thirst. And perhaps man is never more satisfied in God alone than when they experience the sufficiency of his comfort during their darkest hour when all other joys have been stripped away. Here God's described as the father of mercies. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, which in this context implies that we deserve to be left alone by God in our suffering. But rather God in his love does the opposite. This is why this is such a powerful statement and not just small talk. This isn't just an opportunity to say God is this and God is that, but he's the father of mercies because we don't deserve to be visited by him in our sufferings. But here he promises to visit us in our sufferings. I came across a story that helped me to understand this better. The story was about a man named Booth Tucker, and it read like this. One night, while conducting an evangelistic meeting in the Salvation Army Citadel in Chicago, Booth Tucker preached on the subject of the sympathy of Christ. After his message, a man approached him and said, Sir, if your wife had just died, like mine has, and your babies were at home crying for their mother who would never return, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. Tragically, only a few days later, Tucker's wife was killed in a train accident. Her body was brought to Chicago and carried to the same citadel for the funeral. After the service, the bereaved preacher looked down in the silent face of his wife and he turned to those who were in attendance and he said, The other day, a man told me that I would not speak of the sympathy of Jesus if my wife had just died. If that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart, it is very broken. But it has a song put there by Jesus. And I want that man to know that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. Some of us will never know God's love. Some of us will never see him so vividly as when we see him in our time of trouble. Some of us will not experience God so sufficiently than when we are lying down being soaked in a bathtub of grace because we have no other direction to turn in. Now back to the subject of resistance training. I found it interesting that one of the fundamental responsibilities of the one who is training is for them to breathe naturally throughout the course of their workout. Breathing naturally improves the conditions for their body to develop. Spiritually, it's the same thing. 
God intends for you to breathe naturally through your trial. Breathing naturally through your trial, no matter what the pain is, is an exercise in letting God handle the trial and releasing the anxiety of the trial from being in your possession. For those who suffer, it seems impossible. But the only way it is possible is by His comfort. So for those who are suffering, I encourage you to fear not and be still and know that He is God. We not only experience the power of God in suffering to comfort us, but we also are positioned by trial to experience His power in the form of giving us the power to continue through our sufferings. In verse 6, Paul says, Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and your salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and your salvation. The word salvation here is used twice. And this does not refer to the suffering of one person physically leading to the automatic eternal salvation of another. Rather, it speaks of the God-given ability not to be free from suffering, but to be given the freedom to persevere through suffering. Not to be delivered from a painful experience is a tremendous work of God. But I would say by the lives of the people I've known that to be delivered through a painful suffering by God is perhaps the greater work. You see, Paul knew this firsthand. In fact, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, we read of yet another experience of Paul where this rang true in his life. Again, in chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, Lest I should be exalted above measure, or to put it in our terms, lest I become proud and get a big head, because of the abundance of the things that I've seen from God, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now concerning this painful, annoying, debilitating thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And each time the Lord responded by saying, Son, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul then concludes, Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities rather than being delivered from them. I'll boast in them so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul perplexes me at this point. I say, Paul, are you just a masochist? Is it finally coming out? That all you like is just pain? It's a, it's a thing that's fun for you? Of course not. How is this possible for Paul to say these words and to say, when I am weakest, I am most strong? It's only po- uh, possible by his experiencing God's power during his time of suffering. 
Folks, just this week, I spoke to a dear friend of mine who, within the last seven days, discovered that his wife and one of his daughters each have forms of cancer. And at this point, it's still unknown as to what stages the cancers have progressed. And this man is a wonderful man of God. His family is a great family of God. And as I was weeping with him, as he weeped, I asked him how he's getting through this. And he said what I expected him to say. He said, well, my heart's broken. I'm hurting. But as a family, we've come together and we're praying through this. And we know that whatever has been allowed and whatever will be allowed, God is going to be good throughout all of it. They had the power to be comforted and the power to continue because of their relationship to the Lord. Now, next in this passage, we see that this form of, again, spiritual resistance training by way of trial allows you to provide comfort for others. This is another way that it's beneficial to the body of Christ. Now, Paul again says in verse 6, if we're afflicted, Corinthians, it's for your benefit. It's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enabling you to endure the same sufferings we suffer. Or again, Corinthians, if we receive comfort by God, it's for you. It's for your consolation and salvation. Now, as you read this, notice that Paul's emphasis is that the comfort he was given by God is not to be self-serving. But rather, he says, God gave it to him for the purpose of giving it to others that they might be comforted in their trial, that they might have the ability to endure that trial, and so on and so forth. He's telling the Corinthians that his own personal experience of deliverance through suffering has prepared him to now speak into their lives and enable them, as Paul stands as God's conduit of comforting and, of comfort and strength to the Corinthians. Now, we've considered briefly what Paul's sufferings might have been. Well, what were the Corinthians suffering? You know, again, the scripture is silent as to what they might have been suffering. We're not told specifically, but again, the strength of this passage may be hidden in the fact that we don't know what the Corinthians were suffering. Again, so that we might not be excluded from relating to them. However, we do know that they were suffering. And again, we can relate to the inward distress that the Corinthians were experiencing. Now, here are some of the possibilities of what the Corinthians might have been suffering. Corinth, during the time of the writing of this letter, was a very cosmopolitan city that was renowned for its entertainment, its vice, and its corruption. It was a city that was filled with temples and shrines, the most prominent of which was an 1800 uh, it was called the, uh, the Temple of Aphrodite, which stood upon an 1,800-foot promontory called the Acrocorinthus. And the way that the people of Corinth and the surrounding area would worship Aphrodite was by making use of the 1,000 temple herodulae. These were also known as the consecrated prostitutes of the temple. One writer described the city as being a seaman's paradise, a drunkard's heaven, and a virtuous woman's hell. 
Corinth was said to be a city that was a place where one could take a vacation from morality. It became so notorious for its evils that the term Corinthianazomai, or to act like a Corinthian, became synonymous with debauchery and prostitution. So as Christians living in this environment, more than likely they were experiencing persecution for their faith in the form of ostracism, joblessness. Again, family separation is one member would become a Christian and the other did not want to endure that person who had become a Christian. Perhaps some of these were also being thrown in in prison or experiencing other forms of physical pain because of their faith in Christ. Perhaps their suffering was the result of the church being strained and, in fact, even ripped apart by the false apostles that Paul addressed in each of his letters. Or perhaps the Corinthians were simply suffering from life. You know that to the Christian, suffering is neither incidental nor is it accidental. It's actually very normal and to be expected. Life has a way of just beating us up. But yet in their suffering, Paul was able to give them comfort so that they might persevere. We see that here Paul offered them a living pattern to follow. You see, a good example is probably the best form of teaching. You know, classrooms and lectures and even sermons like this, they could be helpful, but there's no substitute for a living pattern to follow. Paul provided that living pattern for the church then, and he provides a living pattern for the church now. In fact, he told the Philippians in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, these words, he said, The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. We as Christians, just like Paul was a Christian, have the opportunity to have that same testimony ring true in our life. That is, God has ordered for you a certain lot in life, and for some it involves more suffering than others. You have the opportunity to, in your sufferings, be a living pattern of example for those around you. You see, it can be a very fearful thing to pray that God would use you. Because it just might be that the way in which he wants to use you most is very similar to the way in which he used Paul in Paul's sufferings. Now, it appears from the text that the requirement to be used by God as one who would bring comfort to others is not that you have to suffer exactly the same things that they have suffered, but it does appear that you at least have to suffer to the same effect in order to be effective. But on the other hand, having the opportunity to console someone who is suffering in the same way that you have suffered can be a way in which God redeems your experience and allows you to minister to them. I came across a story of a young boy by the name of Douglas Marr and a young woman named Laura Bradley. The story read like this. Douglas Marr, 15, of Creve Coeur, Missouri, had been feeling bad for several days. His temperature was ranging between 103 and 105 degrees, and he was suffering from severe flu-like symptoms. 
Finally, his mother took him to the hospital in St. Louis. Douglas Marr was then diagnosed as having leukemia. The doctors told him in frank terms about the disease, and they said that for the next three years he would have to undergo chemotherapy. They didn't sugarcoat the side effects. They told Douglas that he would more than likely become bald and that his body would bloat. Now, upon learning this, he went into a deep depression. Knowing this, his aunt called the local floral shop, and she arranged to have flowers delivered to Douglas. She told the clerk at the flower shop that the arrangement was for her teenage nephew who had leukemia. Now, when the flowers arrived, they were beautiful. Douglas read the card from his aunt, but then he saw a second card. The card read, Douglas, I took your order at the floral shop. I work over at Brick's Florist. I had leukemia when I was seven years old. Now I'm 22 years old. Good luck, Douglas. My heart goes out to you. Sincerely, Laura Bradley. Upon reading this, Douglas, for the first time in a long time, had his face light up. And he looked up and said, Oh. The story goes on to read, it's funny. Douglas Morrow was in a hospital filled with millions of dollars of the most sophisticated medical equipment. He was being treated by expert doctors and nurses with medical training totaling in the hundreds of years. But it was a sales clerk in a flower shop, a woman making $170 a week by taking the time to care and being willing to do what her heart told her to do that gave Douglas hope and the will to carry on. Now prayerfully and by faith, during your time of suffering, I would ask you to look around you and see how God might use you in the same way that Paul was used, in the same way that Laura here was used to bring hope to those who are suffering and currently have no hope. You know, more often than not, God manifests himself to his children by doing it through his children. And that's exactly what he did to Paul, as Paul was God's conduit of comfort and strength to the Corinthians. Now, fourthly, this form of spiritual resistance training that comes to us by way of trial works a good thing in that it produces a greater faith in God within you. You know, for me, perhaps this is where it gets really good for us. Now, I would ask that you take a moment and think about the trial that you're in, or perhaps the trial that you were just in, or for some of you who foresee yourself being in a trial, pretty much covers the uh, panacea here, doesn't it? And I want you to think about three things. I want you to affirm three truths to yourself. You might want to consider writing these things down so that uh, in the future or even presently you can ask yourself about these things. I want you first to affirm that God is sovereign, right? Right. Secondly, I want you to affirm that God in in his sovereignty has allowed this trial, right? Right. And thirdly, I want you to affirm to yourself that God 
because of his promises, will constructively use that trial to make you the man or woman of God he wants you to be. Again, let's refer back to the nature of physical resistance training. We've said that it involves the peripheral muscles being broken down as they push or pull against some force. And over time, with repeated activity, the muscle fibers get longer and thicker. Subsequently, you're able to work against a greater force or lift heavier weight for longer periods of time. Your trial is your opposing force. As such, the trial is not against you, but it's actually for you. It's not your enemy. It's actually your friend. In this sense, the trial is working to build you up. Have you ever considered that perhaps the trial you're facing could be the best thing that ever happens to you on this side of heaven? You know, that was true for my father. Around 10 to 12 years ago, he was dealing with chronic back pain that became so debilitating that for periods of time he was not able to work and subsequent to enduring his struggle with the back pain that also had implications upon his job and in what I still believe was an unfair act, they uh, discarded him from his place of employment. Once in their eyes, he was no longer an asset but, but a liability as a result of his condition. My dad still suffers to this day off and on. And on a few occasions, especially when my dad is suffering, I take that time to thank him that he has responded to his suffering in the way that he has. You know, through his suffering, God got his attention. It was about 10 years ago that he became a believer in Christ. Through his suffering, God got the whole family's attention. And at that same time, I, too, became a believer in Christ. And I've often told my dad, Dad, you're a type of Jesus in my life in that because of your suffering, I know the Lord. And I know his comfort. And the Lord has shared his comfort with my dad and with my mother and with the family. Dad, would you please stand up? What Paul was to the Corinthians, that man has been to me. That as a result of me observing him and his sufferings and being a benefactor of that which he received as a result of his sufferings, I have life and I have comfort and I have strength. Paul put it this way. Let's return to our passage in verse 8. We were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. I didn't want to live anymore, Paul says. Yes, I resigned myself to the fact that I had received a death sentence and the only thing left for me was to die, as Paul says. Here we see that Paul was torn down, much like that muscle gets torn down during physical exercise. But we see in the latter part of that passage, Paul was built up. This is how it works. God is your spiritual spotter. 
Now, for those of you who are familiar with resistance training, you know what a spotter is. For those of you who aren't, let me quickly inform you. A spotter is someone who assists another person in their resistance training. They're there to be a support. They're there to allow that person who is training to attempt to lift heavy weight, weight that they would not responsibly try without anybody else around because of the fear of being crushed under the weight. And as that spotter is there, they serve not only as a perfunctory um, person who simply will help to take the weight off, but they're also there to give encouragement during the resistance training. Now, picture yourself working out on a bench press. We all know what a bench press is. It's where you lay down on your back and the weight's above you, and you're going to take the weight off of the bench and then proceed with repetitions. Now, there the trainee is. There his spotter is hovering over the trainee. And that weightlifter takes the weight off of the bench, has it up, proceeds with a repetition. Does a couple, and perhaps by the third or fourth, halfway up, he begins to struggle. Doesn't know if the weight is going to come down on him. Now this whole time, the spotter is there saying, come on, you can do it, it's all you, you're doing great. And once that trainee needs help, that spotter's there. Now if that spotter has the trainee's best intention in mind, they're not going to immediately relieve the weightlifter of all the weight. But what they're going to do is they're going to let that person know that their hands are underneath the bar and that they're there, but they're going to slowly, degree by degree, help that person lift the weight. And during this time, the spotter is saying, you can do it, you can do it, I'm here, don't worry. The last thing you need to be concerned about is that weight crushing you because I'm here. The only thing you have to focus on is getting through it. And so once that rep is done, you put the bar back on the bench. And because you strained yourself to that limit, you have now increased your potential for growth. Paul also articulated it this way. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. Beginning in verse 13, where we read Paul saying, No temptation. Now, it's interesting that that word temptation is the Greek word parasmo, which actually more accurately means a trial of any kind, not necessarily just a solicitation to evil. Paul says, No trial of any kind has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God's faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But with the test, he'll make the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Faith grows in two ways for the Christian. By believing God's promises and by experiencing his deliverance. And as we've read, Paul continued in verse 10 of our passage in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 10, where Paul says that God delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul's basically saying that during his time of suffering, he was infused with a strength so that he came out the other end of this trial having a greater optimism, a greater hope, and a greater strength for whatever trials he would face in the future. Recently, I've been asking people that I've known have suffered and are Christians how exactly they get through their suffering, and I've asked them how their suffering has impacted them. 
And the answer that I get has been 100% consistent among all Christians. They say, I get through my suffering because I trust in the Lord's goodness, that He hasn't allowed this sufferable thing without a reason or a greater purpose. Then I ask them, well, practically, how do you get through it? And they say, prayer. Which brings me to my final point this evening. This form of spiritual resistance training and the form of trial affirms the necessity of us having a connection to the church. Paul ties his deliverance closely to the prayers of the Corinthians, where in verse 11 he says, You, Corinthians, also help together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Here he shows how the lives of Christians are inescapably intertwined. When you're connected to the church, you have a fan base, and these Christians are fans of your relationship to God and of your willingness to suffer through your trial in order to increase other people's favorable opinion of God as they see Him carry you through your suffering and perhaps even bring you through transformation and deliverance from that suffering. Paul in Romans 15 said this, beginning in verse 1, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak or the distresses of the weak, and not to please ourselves, but... Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written were written for our learning that we may through the patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. I believe that each of us are in either one of those two camps at all times. We're either strong and able to comfort someone else or we're weak and needing someone else's comfort. Look around you and see where you might have a role in someone else's life. Now tonight we've looked at some of the ways in which God has promised to visit us during our time of trial, constructively used that trial to make us the man and woman that he might want us to be in him. But I want to finish by sharing with you an example in the life of Jesus and the apostles that perhaps speaks to each thing that we discussed here this evening. Turn with me in closing to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Here we see again that God prefers to use this spiritual resistance training to make his men and women. In verse 45, we read that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Again, we see that Jesus is almost setting them up for something. While he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. Now when he saw the disciples straining at rowing, one form of resistance, he noticed them because the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. It almost sounds like Jesus saw them struggling and just kind of waited a while before he decided to go in their direction. When he saw them, he walked on the sea. I'm sorry, he walked on the sea. And he was just planning on passing them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out, get your... Get in your mind the idea of uh, middle school girls crying on a roller coaster. <laughs> Sorry, middle school girls. The guys probably scream louder than you do. 
I'm in trouble now. They supposed it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled or scared or terrified. But immediately Jesus talked with them and said to them, Hey, disciples, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he went up to the boat and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and they marveled. That trial that's in your life, that ghost that has you terrified, it could be the Lord. It could be the Lord setting you up sovereignly so that in the end you might be calmed and also greatly amazed at the Lord beyond measure and you yourself will marvel at his deliverance so that you would come out the other end knowing where you stand with the Lord, having experienced his power, having a greater faith and dependence upon the body and also having the ability to comfort others. You know, God doesn't always allow what we want in our lives, but he always allows what we need. So the deal is this. You keep your priorities, and God will keep his promises to take that trial and use it for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that even in trial we need not fear nor be distressed nor be destroyed. And so, God, I would ask that for those who have needed to hear this word, that they would be comforted and encouraged and strengthened. And so, Jesus, we dedicate ourselves to you, making ourselves available that whatever your purposes in us might be, that you would be well served and well